relief and development friends, we were handed a handkerchief soaked in uh, cheap cologne because the stench of death was overpowering. You would get sick if you didn't have that. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. Forty years ago this month, during Israel's invasion into Lebanon, Israel's defense minister, Ariel Sharon, sent Lebanese militia forces, the Phalangists, into the Sabra and Shatila Palestinian refugee camps in Beirut on false claims of so-called terrorism. Thousands were slaughtered in a three-day massacre, and no one was ever tried for war crimes. Ariel Sharon would become, of course, Israel's prime minister in 2001. As the late great reporter Robert Fisk wrote 10 years ago in The Independent, quote, the stench of injustice still pervades the camps where 1,700 Palestinians were butchered. No one was tried and sentenced for a slaughter, which even an Israeli writer at the time compared to the killing of Yugoslavs by Nazi sympathizers in the Second World War. Sabra and Shatila are a memorial to criminals who evaded responsibility, who got away with it. Fisk was one of the first reporters on the scene at the massacre in 1982. So was our next guest. We're glad to be joined today by Reverend Donald Wagner, a longtime Chicago-based activist for Palestinian rights and an ordained Presbyterian clergy person. He's also the author of a phenomenal new memoir, Glory to God in the Lowest, Journeys to an Unholy Land, out now by Olive Branch Press. Don witnessed the aftermath of the Sabra and Shatila massacre, which he writes about at length in his book. And he's also written about what he saw for the Electronic Intifada. Don, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Nora. There's so much to talk about with you, um, about your memoir and, and your, your, your legacy of activism. But I want to start by having you lay out for us what you saw 40 years ago this September in 1982 at Sabra and Shatila and, and why it remains so important to illuminate the horrors of this genocide. Can you take us back and, and recount a little bit what you saw? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly a painful memory to recall. And I must say that uh, as an American, privileged American, um, you know, I, I visited and I could leave while the Palestinians and the Lebanese, because many Shiite were killed in that massacre, uh, had to remain and deal with the injustice till today. And it's been covered up, uh, as we know. I didn't get into the camps till Monday morning, uh, unlike Robert Fisk, who got in on Sunday, as some others. So um, uh, some of the survivors and the relatives had already come back, and when I, went in um, on Monday morning after the massacre ended, the uh, a, a bigger wave of survivors and relatives were coming in. And uh, it was so gut-wrenching. You had to, well, we walked by the Israeli-controlled apartment building. They were still there, of course. And uh, you could see how they could monitor everything from that vantage point with their telescopic lenses. And uh, immediately as we got close to the camp, I was with two other relief and development friends. 
we were handed a handkerchief soaked in uh, cheap cologne because the stench of death was overpowering. You would get sick if you didn't have that. And immediately we walked over and, and we're just taken aback because pieces of bodies were being pulled out and mothers would see uh, a torso or a decomposed uh, head of their child and just scream out Allah Allah why 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 and I mean I just feel it as I redescribe and after a couple of those experiences I had a chance to interview um, a survivor who tried to get back in he was a shopkeeper and he was purchasing goods in Beirut and of course the Israelis wouldn't let anyone in he tried to get in Thursday even and entrances were all blocked and sealed off uh and he described how he was at an apartment building and he witnessed uh from a distance a little bit of what was going on as a, these militias came in but also how israel put up flares so the slaughter could go into the night friday and saturday um so just that <laughs> it was just agonizing and then i sat down to kind of recover in front of a mass grave and i was sitting next to french journalists and uh, we began to weep as we saw it. it it just really got to you and then she asked me the dreaded question where are you from <laughs> i didn't want to answer but i had to say i'm from the united states she said and i said we bear culpability because by then i knew that the u.s had signed off on Israel coming in and relinquished its positioning because they could have prevented all this if they had honored the commitment they made to the PLO. And she said, you're not alone. We, we signed it as French. Uh, the Italians did too. And we'd let this happen. So we conversed about our culpability. And then I saw an imam walking by and I excused myself and ran to catch up with him. And uh, and I asked him if, if he'd be willing to answer a few questions. His English was perfect. And uh, I asked about, well, what had he witnessed? And he said he saw uh, hundreds lined up on Friday night against a couple of buildings and machine gun to death. And then trucks came and trucked them out and we will never find the bodies. I asked him to estimate what he thought uh, were the number of deaths. He said, we'll never know. He said, I would estimate between 2,000 and 3,000. That's as close as we can get. And with the mass graves, uh, he said, that's some testimony to it. Then he asked me, where are you from, my friend? And I said, the United States, and I know the blood's on our hands. He affirmed, yes, the blood's on your hands. But I thank God you're here, he said. Just go home and tell the truth. Just go home and tell what you've seen. And that has stuck with me my whole life. I'll never forget it. That's the least I can do with the suffering and uh, to, to carry that responsibility to tell what I've seen. And as that massacre was covered up, we see the continuation that Israel's got carte blanche, the murder of Shireen, Rachel Curry, it just goes on and on. So until these are rectified and there's accountability, it's gonna continue. 
what brought you to Beirut at that time? Um, you know, you went during Israel's invasion of Lebanon. What yeah. what were you doing there, and how did it? You know, how did that change the trajectory of your life as an activist and and as a clergyman? Yeah. Well, I had taken a group of uh, relief and development people from the U.S. from various organizations, mostly Christian, so that they could see and then hopefully uh, develop proposals to come back to the refugee camps and so on. And uh, so we also were deeply concerned that we begin to impact evangelical Christians on this issue and connect them with Middle East Christians and Muslims uh, and Israelis. So um, we were headed back with two proposals, three actually. There were two relief and development proposals, one to work with the Red Crescent, and the other uh, with the uh, Middle East Council of Churches in the refugee camps. Then we had a proposal for Gabi Habib, who just died, uh, the head of the Middle East Council of Churches, to develop a relationship between Western evangelicals and Middle East Christians and Muslims. Um, so we were carrying those, and we left. They left Portland. I left Chicago on Thursday night, but we heard the news that Bashir Jamal had been blown up and assassinated, and things were in turmoil. So we conversed and said, no, nah, let's go anyway. Uh, it'll be okay. So um, we landed in Cyprus. I connected with them, and we jumped in a cab and it headed to a boat because the airport had been destroyed. And uh, within 10 minutes, the first broadcast came over the BBC of the massacre. So the driver said, you're not going anywhere. So we got a hotel. Then we were able to go in the next night. That's why we were delayed a little bit getting there. So we went with those uh, proposals to try to be of some help. And uh, when we arrived at the Middle East Council office, Gabi was briefing the doctors and nurses quickly who had been in the camps. And then he was redeploying them because the Israelis were coming up the streets and he didn't want them caught. So he said, Don, get over to the camps. You've got to go and witness this for yourself. So that's what took us there. In your memoir, you write about your history of civil rights activism and how it brought you to work for Palestinian liberation. Um, our, own, our own Ali Abunima wrote a blurb on the back of the book uh, saying, quote, Don Wagner has the courage to listen to Palestinians and speak the truth about Palestine at the times and in the places where silence would have been much easier. Can you talk about how the silence and the silencing works, especially inside American Christian communities? And you know, in terms of Christian Zionism, um, and how yeah. you've worked for decades to to challenge and and undermine that silencing. Yeah, well, I grew up as a Christian Zionist. In fact, I'm the product of two types. One is the fundamentalist evangelical, the end time type, and I kind of pulled out of that in my teenage years. But then in seminary, I caught the post Holocaust version, which is important. But yet there's a, there's a dimension of that which really silences voices um, uh, on, on the issue of justice in Palestine. And I was very much a part of that. My first church at a seminary was a black church. We were twinned with a synagogue, which was great. We worked on anti-Semitism. But we were guided to uh, leave the issue of Palestine to the, uh, where, where really the Zionist leadership and the rabbis 
uh, which we heated. Um, eventually, uh, I began to see the light when I helped organize a course on Israel-Palestine. Still, I was very much of a liberal, progressive Christian Zionist. And uh, when we organized the course, it was during the uh, Arab boycott of oil and people were in gas lines and really irritated with the Arabs. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to, for learning, we hope. So in the committee, it was my first committee because I just moved to Evanston, Illinois. And one of the com committee members suggested, well, instead of the usual pro-Israel narrative and positions, let's look at the Palestinians. And uh, he made me a little nervous because I was still very much in the Zionist camp. So I said, well, let's make this balanced. At that point, I believed the myth of balance. Then I later learned there's no balance in this struggle. It's totally imbalanced. But uh, that's where I was. So uh, even though I just arrived there two weeks before, I was assigned to bring in the Israeli speakers. So I got the Israeli consulate of a Chicago uh, person to come in, and he gave a passionate defense of Israel. This was just after the 73 war, so I was very pleased. You know, this tiny little country surrounded by hostile Arabs, and uh, we in the Christian church in the U.S. need to support Israel. Uh, because it's our, it's our the only democracy in the region, and they are our sisters and brothers. So okay, then my friend brought in Professor Ibrahim Abulugod, and Dr. Abulugod gave really the first narrative of the Nakba that I had ever heard. I was a passionate reader of the New York Times and all the other. Uh, mainstream issues, but somehow I missed that, and I was a little surprised that I didn't know that much about it. And uh, Abelugo really jarred my narrative completely. I wasn't really ready to accept it, and I walked into the office the next morning, and the first phone call I had was uh, two Holocaust survivors from nearby Skokie who said, we understand you have just dignified the position of a PLO terrorist in your church. If this course is not canceled by Wednesday, expect your church to be picketed and we'll keep this up. Uh, and then they hung up. So I was uh, a little surprised because I came from the black church where we had everything. I had dialogue with the Panthers and of course we had a uh, dialogue with the uh, synagogue going on and why? We should be able to talk about anything in the church. So um, the, the course went on. Thankfully, our staff supported it, and it actually grew because word got around about how controversial this is. So the, the attendance jumped from about 20 to 25 to a packed room of 75 to 100. So it really kind of did us a favor, but it taught me hey, you know, you're stepping into controversial territories, so you darn well better uh, study this. That forced me then to do a lot of reading, a lot of meetings with uh, Professor Abelugod and others, and then to take my first trip to Beirut and then down to Palestine. And then I saw, I saw the reality. And that, that totally changed my narrative and approach. What I, I'll add, within about a year and a half of that trip, 
I decided to uh, leave the church and find a way to work full-time on the Palestinian issue. Tell us about that first trip to Palestine after, um, after visiting Beirut and, and seeing what you saw there. And, um, you know, like there's, there's um, the, here in the, in the U.S., you know, people don't associate uh, Palestinian Christians with the Palestinian experience as a whole. Of course Um, there's uh, there's a lot of misinformation and, and ignorance about um, the Palestinian Christian community Um, as, as a Christian clergy person, what was that like um, learning from people who have been there the entire time? Yeah. I, Realizing how little I knew and how much I needed to listen, that's what I tried to do. And, uh, I mean, these Christian friends um, were very close with the Palestinians. They were volunteering and working in the refugee camps, including Burj al-Barajne, Sabr Shatila, uh, uh, south of Beirut. And they had actual ministries and people volunteering and working in these camps Gabi Habib himself organized the first Christian conference, as far as we know, with the PLO in Beirut on theological, Christian theological and Muslim theological perspectives on justice for Palestine. 1969, I think it was. And uh, I think he and the Middle East Council churches did more to educate Europeans and Americans and Canadians on Palestine than anybody. So it came from them as we listened and were, you know, just astounded at what was happening in our name. So they took me into the camps. Um, A a Coptic priest was taking me around and he was very close to the popular front leadership. And uh, he, he, uh, well, the first thing he did was he took me in a cab up to a burial ground uh, where uh, the massacre in Tel Azatar took place with the Phalangists and the Syrians. And we walked over the ground and he said, we kept an eye on the highway because we said, he said, we're not here. This is a closed military zone. Keep an eye on the perimeter. If we see, if we see any vehicles, we got to move quickly and get out of here. So that was a little unsettling. And then he said, remind me, you're walking over the graves of maybe 10,000 people who were bulldozed and then buried. And that had taken place less than a year before. And then we went to Burj al-Barajne where many of them fled. And, uh, and then we heard more of the stories. Now, remember, I, I admired, um, they took me to a little home and I, I, their story was told and translated for me. And uh, I saw a beautiful little embroidery, and I just kind of admired it. And, of course, they pulled it down and said, it's yours. I said, how? I cannot take this. Please take it back. I I was just admiring the beauty of this. And uh, so they, they finally did take it back, but it is embarrassing. But that's the dimension of hospitality. I, I'd never seen an experience hospitality like that. And that touches you at a very deep level. These poorest of the poor 
are ready to give you anything to feed you and care for you if you just care and listen. So that's what I did. I, I just listened. And my life was really transformed by that first trip. And in fact, I even mentioned to um, uh, Gabi and a, and a priest there, you know, I think I'd like to prepare myself a little bit and move back and, and uh, just leave the church and come here and work with you on the Palestine question. And the priest said, you know, uh, that's very kind of you, but uh, you're going to practically, it's going to take you two to three years to get your Arabic together. And we need you to be conversant in Arabic. But, you know, we need people who understand this to go back and tell what you've seen uh, and, and just work in the churches and work on, on your Congress. That's what we need. So that's, in fact, what I did. How how do you how did you and how do you um, still talk to you know activists um, church community uh, members um, about and and politicians about what's happening in Palestine? How do you connect the struggle for human rights here to what's happening there and what happened in Lebanon forty years ago? Well, I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> And um, it's a constant uh, struggle. Usually it's the stories, not my stories so much as the Palestinian stories. So that there's a visceral kind of connection, you know, like child detention. Uh, my wife is Palestinian and um, she has land that has been stolen and the deed to a large piece of property uh, the signature of her father was forged by a settlement company uh, in 2010, and her father died in 1977. Yet, they'll probably get away with it. And she's one of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, but we're going to fight it just on principle. Uh, probably it's impossible to win in the Israeli courts, but we're going to fight it. Um, so that story has a little bit of relevance to a few Americans. But I think we have to be persistent. We had an interesting experience here in the southwest suburbs of Chicago um, where we were able to help educate uh, a woman who was running against one of the more pro-Israel conservative Democrats in the House. We lost the first round, but she opened up on Palestine. We met with her. We continued to send articles. She was totally open. She would read and say, got it, read it uh, right away. And she won. She won the second time around. And uh, we tried to get more of the Arab and Muslim community involved, and they eventually did. So she won that election. This time, uh, the Democrats pitted her against a moderate pro-Israel Democrat. APEC pumped in millions of dollars, and she lost. So we got another challenge. So it's a lesson in Samud, steadfastness. We just can't give up and we just got to get more people on board. And that's an injustice in itself, how she lost. Because she's good on all the issues across the board from transportation, uh, gender and environment. So uh, we really lost a valuable person, but uh, we got to get back up. And I'm hearing people around the country doing that. And you know, the difference now is that a few of us uh, are not alone. We've got JVP, 
AMP, the Muslims are really doing a phenomenal job getting organized. The churches are passing resolutions now. We have more openness in the churches than I saw when back in the early, late 70s and early 80s. So there's an openness, uh, but we got a lot of Christian Zionism in the churches, the liberal mainline type that we really have to overcome and help educate. So it's, it's trying to really find the narrative, uh, the theological, but also the stories that can impact and, uh, and and bring people and never give up. You know, there's a great story that Jesus teaches us a parable. Uh, there's a very poor woman who had been dealt an injustice and she comes to a, just, to a justice uh, who the, the Bible says he respected neither God nor people. And she never gave up. She kept hammering on his door. It says day after day. And finally, this judge says, get this woman away from me. She's wearing me down. Give her justice. So that's Samud. That's steadfastness, never giving up. So that, that woman is a model for us. I love that. Um, there's, you know, when, when you're public, uh, about your um, opinions, your your political opinions, and and you know based on fact and history, um, and yeah. human rights, um, there you know there, there's always you know the apex, but also the the legions of of Zionists, both Jewish and Christian, um, who will smear you as a as an anti-Jewish bigot, as an anti-Semite. Um, yeah. What advice do you have for other activists and members of clergy um, who are attacked with this kind of uh, you know false claim of anti-semitism in order to shut you up and silence you and and not criticize israel yeah well i guess the first advice is accept it and uh, you're going to get nailed uh smeared etc it, it goes with the territory and I always just try to remember Palestinians and Israelis who are going through the same thing. Uh, they've got a harder road to haul than I certainly do. So it's it's humbling when you keep it in that perspective. And it's it's also important to stay conscious, um, just, just to try to remain peaceful, but firm with the backbone and not, and not to back down. Um, and for me, I had to learn the hard way. It's, I try to spend about an hour every morning in meditation and prayer just to remember those things and, and to be conscious of the need to be centered, uh, but not to back down. Don't be afraid. I mean, fear is the biggest weapon they have. Be not afraid. And uh, that's a journey. And also to know you're not in this alone. Not only are you connected with that community in Palestine and Israel uh, who's working harder than you are, but you've got friends here. You're part of a bigger community, so stay, stay in touch with them, counsel, and, and get that support. But no, you're not alone. And, 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 and if this cause is in your blood, keep at it. And then finally, now we work intersectionally. Even we're less alone with Black Lives Matter, with the Muslim community, uh, a growing number of, of native indigenous people. Uh, so 
all these things fit together. You got to keep reminding yourself, hey, I'm not alone. I'm not scared of this. And my calling is to tell the truth. What do you hope people get from your book um, and take to heart? And and how could it help inform activism? What, what do you hope um, it, can, it can do? Yeah. Well, when you put out, you know, your memoir in a story like this, um, I tried to frame it so a lot of stories might connect with people and to see how foolish and ignorant I was. And it's important to keep learning. So um, for maybe lessons for people just to stay open and, and to help some people who are locked into a certain Zionist narrative or afraid to touch this issue. Listen, this is a central issue. And I think about Palestine as being, and, and I think the poet Mahmoud Darwish talks about Palestine as metaphor. Palestine is a metaphor, like a prison, prism that you can hold up to other issues and it kind of exposes them for the injustice uh, and, and for a seminal issue. And for Christians, Muslims, and Jews, it's what I call the unholy land and why that land is called unholy now with the injustice being done. So I hope people can be open to have their narratives changed, you know, kind of like mine was changed. I'm also hopeful that people will see the need for intersectional work. Uh, this is anti-racism work. It's also, I didn't develop this much, but it's environmental work. Israel has become one of the biggest environmental disasters, particularly when you go through the West Bank and see what they're doing. Uh, Gaza, my God, what they're doing to Gaza. So I'm just hoping people can get that intersectional need to build friendship with other causes and be there for them as well as you hope they'll be there for you. Then I'm trying to offer some fresh insights on Christian Zionism. And um, not many people are talking about the mainline liberal uh, type uh, as a form of Christian Zionism, but I, I say it equally is. And I've offered some new approaches to Christian Zionism. So there, uh, you know, I hope that is, uh, is helpful, but mainly just just for people to see this issue is something that's central, uh, that our own country is culpable in, in perpetuating not only settler colonialism and justice, but outright genocide. And uh, we have a lot to, uh, we have a long way to go, but uh, I hope people will be inspired by some of the models of Palestinians and Israelis that I point to uh, who are paying a price but are not giving up. Finally, Don Wagner, um, bringing it back to 1982 for a moment, what are some of the images, um, you know, what are some of the stories of the people you met right after the massacre at Sabrin Shatila that still stick with you 40 years later? Um, and what do you do with those memories? How do they propel your work uh, right now? Right. Thank you. Well, you know, I was doing an interview with the Palestine Museum up in Massachusetts, and my interviewer happens to be my publisher, who's just a phenomenal person, Michelle 
Mushabek, he asked me uh, to read that passage that's in the introduction. And as much as I've read that, thought about it, as I read it, I choked up. So there's a deep visceral thing that hits me when I remember the death and the suffering, the screams of the mothers and daughters, um, and, and then what the imam told me. Just all we ask, just go home and tell what you saw. You know, and, and to keep telling, but refine how efficient you are in working and, and, and making that narrative fit your audience. So it's a constant struggle. So the people who were suffering and dying, the poor shopkeeper who went and uh, he lost everybody but a son who escaped, his, his wife, four children, his whole livelihood was gone. Yet he took time with me. Um, so I remember him. And, uh, and then I, I just remember the, uh, you know, kind of the, the privilege I had to go in and the even larger responsibility I have to be faithful to those people who, who paid the price. And if I could do, make some small contribution for justice for them, um, that has to be a driving force. For me, it's a very spiritual and a very political and a deeply personal calling. So uh, that, that's how I view it. And, and, and I'll never let it go as long as I live. I'll, I'll remember these people, these memories, and that call. Just go and tell and try to get better at it. Thank you so much. Once again, the book is called Glory to God in the Lowest, Journeys to an Unholy Land, out now by Olive Branch Press. We'll have all the links on the podcast blog post that accompanies this episode. Don Wagner, it's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, Noren, for all EI does. Thank I'm you. a daily reader and need it. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Be well. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.